What gives a place its sense of place? How is it that some books make you feel like you have actually traveled somewhere, visited a particular town and time? What distinguishes music with a strong regional flavor from a generic top 40 hit? And what's the difference between a chili dog from your hometown and a chili dog from mine? All these little things add up to one big question. Where are y'all from? What are you drinking? Old fashioned. Ooh, oh, I thought of you. Okay, so I made a lemon pound cake. Ooh. Uh, and part of it involved making a lemon vanilla bean simple syrup. Mm. And so I had some of that left over. And so I thought that you would like that. Maybe not the lemon part, but I can make you some vanilla syrup to put in old fashioned. That'd be really good. That sounds lovely. Um, but I put some in some monkey shoulder blended scotch and I topped it with a little bit of Isla scotch, which is the kind of uh, whiskey that tastes like a campfire or like coal. Does it taste like Lagavulin? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Ron Swanson would freaking love this right now. Mm, I am not a fan. <laughs> not a fan. The only the only way I like my bourbon smoked is if you order a Warden Precinct at Manifesto and they literally set it on fire. Mm. For the uninitiated, Manifesto is an old speakeasy in Kansas City and it's probably the coolest bar on the planet. I might be a little biased, mm -hmm. but it was a very cool place. But yeah, that, that was my favorite drink there. And they would bring, uh, you know, matches to your table and just set your beverage on fire. <laughs> just got to watch your eyebrows, but it was really fun. I don't like the smoky boozes otherwise. Oh, I, it tastes like you're drinking a campfire mm. and no. fossil fuels all at the same time. It's no. amazing. I'm all in for the vanilla simple syrup, though. Mm -hmm. I'll make you some. Hey, man. Damn, look at those books. Oh, what yeah. Fancy book learning. Yeah, you, you would think that I was uh, smart and or could play music. <laughs> Tyler and I get along because we both have mastered this self-deprecating humor. And uh, we don't, you know, most friends make fun of each other. We just make fun of ourselves in front of each other. It really works out. Totally. It's delightfully charming. Um, what what do you play, Tyler? I mean. Uh, nothing terribly well. Uh, I... I, I, I dabble uh on things guitar is my latest okay um so our guest today is tyler fritz um he's a buddy of mine from grad school as you will hear in a second when i um read through his bio here tyler got his bachelor's at uh, berea college his master's at the university of louisville in music history and literature and his PhD at the University of Memphis in musicology and Southern regional studies. Tyler is an adjunct member of the music faculty at Rhodes College in Memphis, where he teaches courses in ethnomusicology. His primary research interests concern folk and popular music of the American South. Dr. Fritz has conducted ethnographic fieldwork in Memphis and the greater Mississippi Delta, as well as Eastern Kentucky. He has presented his work at local, regional, national, and international conferences. On another note, he's been a vegetarian almost as long as I've known him, but I think living in Memphis and smelling that barbecue, I've heard a rumor that that may have changed recently. I guess you could say I ribbed him too much about it over the years. Oh. Okay, I'll, I'll just uh, turn that around. <laughs> oh, wow, bravo. Uh, yeah, thanks. thanks for having me. 
anything you want to add there? I know I just stole that from the website, but yeah, if, if we wanted to get real fancy, uh, it, it's now got on it that um, uh, in 2019, I was a visiting professor uh, of uh, popular music and media studies uh, at Paderborn University in Germany. I'm now uh, a faculty member of the Rhodes Institute for Regional Studies, which is a, a summer program uh, where students work with faculty members uh, on really big sorts of projects. Uh, and I'm also uh, a faculty member of the Mike Curb Institute for Music at Rhodes College. Here's my confession. I'd never heard the word ethnomusicology or ethnographic for that matter until today. So I might be fixing to learn something. It's exciting. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's just a fancy, uh, it, a word that's maybe too too fancy for its own good. But yeah, the, 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 uh, the gist is that I study uh, basically music, uh, the relationship between music and culture and music and society and, and all of that stuff. Um, so I, I focus mainly on the blues. That, that's, that's what I do. Uh, and I'm in Memphis, so that's a great place to be to study the blues. The right place to be and, and to get pushed to the dark side and become a carnivore, apparently. <laughs> yeah uh every now and then yeah yeah it um so i was a vegetarian uh since uh 2007 2007 it's been a it's been a little bit uh, uh every now and then uh over the years i would eat meat if it uh was a uh quote a, a cultural experience <laughs> And living in Memphis, um, as, that's, it's a cultural experience. Fair. Right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, uh, food's such a, a good way to, to get to know people, especially uh, music and food together. So, uh, you know, if I was at um, uh, a barbecue or something, I'm not going to ask for a tofu burger, <laughs> you know. Since uh, COVID happened, uh, once a week we've been ordering uh, food from a local restaurant and uh where we live in memphis we live uh on mud island um which is downtown memphis uh there's a lot of great food but there's not a lot of uh great vegetarian options uh so we've been doing uh lots of barbecue and fried chicken and <laughs> things like that the place that, that's right down the road by us it's called cozy corner and uh it it does not look like a uh a Michelin star restaurant uh, from the outside. Um, it's the, their ribs, uh, I think, are the, the greatest thing in the world. Uh, that would that'd probably be my last meal if, if I were so fortunate to get to pick one. Mm. And what do you get with them? The people need to know about sides. <laughs> uh, coleslaw and baked beans uh, is what I get. Um, but in Memphis, uh, uh, a very popular side dish is barbecue spaghetti, uh, huh. which is uh, typically overcooked spaghetti noodles uh, slathered in barbecue sauce and then kind of uh, sauteed real quick. Interesting. Does it have bacon in it? Sounds like it needs bacon. Yeah, it, it can. Uh, sometimes it's, it's got uh, pulled pork. So, you know, uh, sometimes huh. it's just spaghetti and barbecue sauce. Dang. Nice. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I don't I either, to... but I would try it. I need I'd try to anything once. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's definitely okay. <laughs> well, I texted you when we started this podcast because um, 
I thought you would uh, enjoy the subject matter because this is all about small towns we grew up in, uh, how they kind of made us who we were and how we took that with us when we left. And um, you were born in Mount Sterling, uh, I, but you spent some time in Berea as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that is true. Uh, my, uh, my mom's family is from Berea. Uh, my maternal grandmother's family is from Berea. Yeah, so uh, I did spend a lot of time there. Uh, what I know about Mount family. Sterling is court days. Oh, yes, absolutely. Still a thing? Uh, I assume so. Uh, I've, I haven't been home uh, uh, for court days in some time. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's in October, the first, uh, the first Monday of October. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a wild thing when I was growing up, uh, you know, that was the, the coolest thing around, you know, this, the whole town turns into a flea market and, uh, everybody's out of school and off work and just hang out with your friends and buy junk you don't need and drink a lot of L8s and, uh, uh, eat country ham sandwiches. Uh, that, that was, uh, most of my court day experience growing up. When did you move to Berea? Yeah, so uh, I moved to Bria for college um, in 2003. I would imagine that a lot of our listeners don't know the unique legacy of Berea College. And I saw trolling your Twitter bio that you are a first-gen, or as we now say, first-opportunity college student. Uh, So for folks who don't know about how Berea College makes that possible, tell us a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So Berea College uh, is, is a really interesting, cool place. Founded in 1855. So uh, before the American Civil War, it was co-educating uh, men and women, black folks and white folks. Uh, it was a pretty radical thing, obviously, uh, especially in Kentucky in 1855. Uh, it was founded by an abolitionist named John G. Fee. And uh, Part of what John G. Fee uh, wanted to do, uh, aside from this co-educational goal, was to provide opportunities for uh, poor Appalachians that, that didn't have opportunities. Uh, and Berea College has continued that legacy uh, ever since. They, it's a private liberal arts college. Um, to get in, you have to have a financial need of some sort. Most everybody that goes is a first-generation college student. Uh, most folks are poor. Most folks uh, are a little weird, uh, but that's, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Um, and everybody that goes gets a complete free tuition. Uh, you do have to work. It's a work-study program. So uh, when I was there, you had to work uh, up to 10 hours every week. Um, my first job was in the printing press. Um, I got to, I guess, apprentice under uh, an actual professional print maker, print person. Uh, but I, I left that job to be a janitor, which was, was much more of my speed. Um, <laughs> I, I think at the time I was making uh, $3.15 an hour. Uh, they do pay you, but because it's, um, uh, you know, it's free tuition, uh, that's, that's kind of the way that they, they help to subsidize that. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely, uh, it, it, it's a very small community, but a very tight community. Uh, students are not allowed to have cars on campus. Uh, at least they weren't when I was there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. They, they want everybody to, to live on campus and, and to, uh, you know, 
be together as much as possible. Um, it's, it's a really, really cool, special place. Um, I guess, too, yeah, if, yeah. if none of the students have a car, they're spending all their, even if it's a little bit of spending money from their jobs or their work study, they're spending it in the local economy. And so, because I know there are tons of really cool restaurants and shops and stuff like right downtown. That's what I think I, I said it reminded me of, like a West Coast hippie uh, mecca. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, it, it absolutely is. The college itself is um, uh, sort of this island of super progressive liberalism. Uh, the the city of Berea uh, is, is more like the rest of uh, central and eastern Kentucky. Um, but on campus, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a different world. Uh, they let me go to school and I appreciated that. <laughs> Where did their, they have uh, one of the biggest endowments in the country. That's how they can afford to offer full tuition to anybody that's accepted. But where did that come from? Is it like a single donation or? There's been uh, many large single donations. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where it stands now, but um, in 2003, when, when I first uh, went, uh, it was well over a billion dollars uh, at that point. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's it's dipped and gone up a little bit then, but I think it's it's back over a billion. And and for a school that's got like twelve to fifteen hundred students, uh, that's that's a good bit of money. Um, part of it came from uh, from what I understand from from really good stock market investing over the years as hmm. well. I would also imagine. I think there's something to be said for giving students in education for free and then those students feeling like they need to pay it forward a little i know that i personally like i have felt more compelled to donate to organizations that have given me things for free than say organizations that are super loaded by individuals maybe like mike curb who give them <laughs> tons of money and have buildings named after them you know um so if you're constantly churning out you know successful students that's that's a model for success right there so coming out of that small town background, I mean, you went from Mount Sterling to Berea. Tell us about some of the places that your travels have taken you. I mean, you study music and culture. I'm sure you've gotten to go all sorts of interesting places to do that. So tell us about some of the places that has taken you and how you view and experience those places coming from the part of Kentucky you come from. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I had never really gone anywhere or, or done anything, got been on a plane or anything up until I was 17. Um, I, I think, you know, we had driven to the uh, to Myrtle Beach and to Panama City Beach a couple of times, but that was the extent of my, my travels. Uh, and then the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, uh, I was invited to be a a student ambassador in Australia and New Zealand. So uh, I spent a month uh, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and that, I don't know, that kind of blew my mind. Uh, a, a poor kid from Eastern Kentucky going out on the world real big like that. That was, that was quite the experience. Uh, another cool thing about Berea is that uh, many of the students have a chance to, to travel and that travel is usually paid for. So uh, I did a summer term in uh, Salzburg, Austria, uh, studying uh, Mozart. You've uh, also done a lot of what I've been interested to hear about is your like field recording, um, yeah. trying like and 
tell us about what it's like to like try to track down like, like say a murder ballot or something where it, there's not it doesn't exist and you're trying to get to convince someone to let you record them i feel like growing up in mount sterling in berea walking up to the steps of this house they're more receptive to you than they might be if you were some you know city-fied guy City walking. yeah exactly yeah. um they might be a little more wary of you i don't know Yes and no, uh, I guess is, is sort of the non-answer there. Um, I don't usually do cold calls uh, anymore. Um, when I was doing uh, ballot hunting in, in Eastern Kentucky. Well, uh, tell us what a murder ballot is too. I blew, I blew over that, but because um, oh, yeah. that's pretty dang cool. And I, just saying it, it sounds, it makes me feel like a badass. Absolutely. So uh, Appalachia's got this, this beautiful tradition of, of these uh, acapella songs, uh, typically, you know, the, these really old story songs, uh, some of them that have origins back, you know, in uh, the 15th century in, uh, in the British Isles. And uh, well, that, that's how they got here is, is, is from the British Isles. And then you get kind of stuck in Appalachia uh, over centuries and things tend to change and get localized and uh, made relevant for, for the, the contemporary folks. Uh, and murder ballads are uh, ballads or songs uh, where somebody gets killed. Uh, the, the best of ones, it, it's usually uh, a woman that's doing the killing to a feller. Uh, the fella usually tries to, uh, to be abusive towards the lady uh, or be mean to her or something. And she ends up getting the better of him and, and uh, giving him a good killing. When I, when I went for that, I had partnered with... Uh, uh, Jesse Wells at the Kentucky, you know, at Moorhead State, the Kentucky Center for Traditional Music. Uh, and uh, Jesse Wells is a, a famous Eastern Kentucky uh, fiddler, mandolin player, guitarist, bass player, uh, everything. He's, um, he's currently uh, in uh, Tyler Childers' band. I partnered with Jesse uh, and uh, the Kentucky Center for Traditional Music, and uh, we spent, a, uh, I guess, a month or so, uh, one summer, just tracking down leads that Jesse had, had built up over the years. Um, yeah, we did some, some random door knocking then. Uh, we set up some interviews then and just sort of would go from one place to another. Someone would give us a big set of stories and uh, sing us some and then tell us to go see somebody else and we'd go over and see, see them. Uh, got some, some really remarkable stuff. Um, so... Uh, some fantastic banjo picking. Uh, this fella, Jackie Helton, uh, is uh, an Eastern Kentucky banjo uh, picker and, and singer uh, that sounded like nobody I, I've ever heard before. Uh, he spent a lot of his life uh, up in a holler in Eastern Kentucky, and he learned music from his dad, who learned music from his dad, and, and so forth. And, and he sounded 200 300 years old <laughs> it's really <laughs> really wonderful stuff uh we also met a a lady named uh uh miss bessie and i'm not gonna remember her last name but uh she used to she was from uh red river gorge and when she was a kid like uh eight nine ten eleven her and her sisters had uh a singing group that performed uh, different places through Red River Gorge. Um, and when I met her, she was, she was 90 something and she hadn't sang uh, in 75 years or something, she said. And 
we got talking to her and at first she you know she wasn't going to give us no songs but we got playing a little bit and singing with her and talking to her and before you know it she's she's hauling off giving us a melody that we had never heard before uh so you know pretty neat stuff there that is so neat because i think we take for granted sometimes how we can just google anything and hear it and first of all, the only reason we can do that is people like you that are dedicated to do that. But also so much of that has been done. It's, it seems kind of rare to be the one to find something and record it for posterity's sake. So are those recordings available somewhere to be listened to, or are they in some nerdy music library somewhere <laughs> that, that you got to have like eight passcodes to get into? That's a good question. Uh, they are in my nerdy music library. Which is fair. I just wonder if they're out there uh, for the world. They are at the Kentucky Center for Traditional Music as well. Uh, they're the ones that own, uh, I think, all the, the official rights to it. I don't know. Uh, actually, I think I paid for that trip. I had a, I had a grant, a research grant. I think I, I might own that stuff. You know? I thought you were going to say I, that, I, that you pay for the I, trip and somebody else owns the rights, which would be really on par for like academic study and research. <laughs> Yeah, well, well uh, University of Louisville paid for the trip, actually. Oh, nice. Um, they're the ones that gave me the grant. Did you listen to the Dolly Parton podcast, Dolly Parton's America? I listened to the first couple episodes and I uh, got distracted with something else and forgot to go back. Yeah, that, but it was fabulous what I heard. I mean, it's an understatement to say I'm a fan, but the first episode was about, it was the title of the episode was Sad Ass Songs. And she talked a little bit about murder ballads, although she talked more about the ones where an abusive man killed a woman or wanted to get rid of a woman that was in a situation, as they would say back then, that he didn't want to deal with or something like that. But she, yeah, the whole episode of Sad Ass Songs. There was something else on NPR pretty recently about some of the lost ballads of Appalachia Mm -hmm. and how so many of them were written by women. Oh, and a yeah. lot of that music just drifted off into ether because it never got published or transferred anywhere. That story was about a specific um, songwriter, and actually, they were they interviewed some people in London on that story. I will mm-hmm. link to it in the in the uh, description of this episode because I I sent it to mom actually when it aired. It, I might have sent it to Tyler actually. Now that I think about it, it's really it's amazing. I remembered hearing that episode and being like, "There's a great." Uh, historical fiction book I could write if I could find enough stuff on some of these some of these songwriters in that one in particular but you study music and culture something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how is this pandemic going to shape the the next the new kind of music people are going to create or the next trend I work with a lot of students uh, and the students that I work with are, are all uh, very creative people. A lot of them are musicians and they are, they seem to be collaborating more, uh, which seems odd, at least to an old fart like me, uh, because if you know, you're in quarantine, how are you going to get together and play music? But uh, because we live in the future, they've got, you know, technology that they know how to use and stuff um so yeah i'm seeing a lot of really interesting uh collaborations my students are also really interested uh in uh, in an equity of, of voices and things so uh influences from 
Sweden all sorts of places. Uh, I was going to say too, I think we were already trending toward this remote collaboration thing anyway, because of technology and as bad as this last year has been, can you imagine if we didn't have zoom or we didn't have cell phones or we didn't have that kind of thing? Um, like I, I did a few sessions like remote recording sessions for people, friends of mine in California and Reno, they probably wouldn't even have asked me in four times because now they were like, well, we can't meet anyone in person. So who can we ask anywhere? You know, they just kind of broadens your horizons in a weird way. So we were headed there anyway with like digital recording mm -hmm. and stuff. Like, I think that'll be even more prevalent in years to come for sure. Yeah, I, I think so too. And it kind of scares me that it feels uh, as natural as it does. You know, I've uh, I work that, from home now. That what does every, feel? Oh, being from being, being at home feels that natural. Yeah, yeah. and being on Zoom, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, almost all interpersonal interactions I have are uh, through the computer these days. I think there are a lot of us that are like ready for this to be over, but also like, okay, wait a minute, that means we have to do again. <laughs> exactly. We have to see people. I don't like people. What's happening? Exactly. I'm gonna have to like start wearing deodorant and stuff. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon posted something on Instagram the other day that said, I thought I had appendicitis, then realized I was just wearing pants with a waistband. <laughs> that was the funniest thing I had seen in a That's long great. time. I was like, but why? Why do we have to go back to real pants? I A couple weeks ago, I, this is too much information, my bad, but I got rid of every underwire bra that I own. It was like, never again, never again. Life's too short. So there, I think there are things we will not go back to because we have been shown the light, but. I support that. <laughs> oh, okay. You got to take out either that one or the ribs. Okay. You can text you me later. Have... Think okay. it over. <laughs> uh, Self-deprecating humor and puns. That's all I, that's all I'm good for. We always like to ask this question at the end. Um, what food takes you home immediately or what can you only get in Mount Sterling or Berea or Eastern Kentucky? That is uh, a fantastic question. And I don't have to even think about it. Uh, it's my mama's cornbread. Ooh. Uh, made in, in granny's cast iron skillet. Okay. So it's oh. funny you say that because one of the things I know about Berea is they have a spoon bread festival, which is really more like a corn pudding so you're talking yeah. about actual cornbread, like not the casserole type heavy dish, but like. Correct. No, yeah, I, I, I can't get into the corn pudding, the, the, the <laughs> spoon bread stuff. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. Uh, it's, it's very yeah. sweet. Yeah. Well, that was my next question. There's a big debate among Southerners. Do you put sugar in cornbread? So what does your mom do? Well, we're, you know, uh, my folks are poor Eastern Kentucky hillbillies. Uh so no sugar. Uh, we, we were sugarless. Um, but people, uh, you know, down here if in Memphis, uh, it's sugar in everything. Uh, it's mm -hmm. sugar in your cornbread, sugar in your greens. And barbecue sauce, obviously, is super sweet, you know. Sauce. Pure yeah. sugar, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Does your mama put uh, bacon grease in her cornbread? Uh, she's allergic to mammal meat. Uh, she got that that tick bite uh, that makes you not be able to, to oh, eat animal meat. Wow! So she goes into anaphylactic shock uh, <laughs> uh, if, if she's uh, exposed to it. So uh, no uh, no lard or anything for for us these days. Wow! This is the day that I stopped going outside forever. <laughs>
I don't think I knew that was a thing. That's terrifying. Yeah, she sat it uh, for for some time, 10 years. Okay, we're going to have to do a deep dive into the timeline of her having that experience that she had to stop eating meat and you having the crossover of, uh, you know, not being a vegetarian to, or from being a vegetarian to being a Memphis vegetarian, which I'm doing air quotes <laughs> here that the people can't see, but, you know, it's interesting. It's like, it's almost like between the two of you, you still balanced out your consumption in the yeah. grand scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and she lives on a farm, her and my, my dad, my, well, he's my stepdad, but he's my dad. Um, they, uh, they've got 150 acres that sit right in the middle of the Daniel Boone uh, in Bath County. And they raise uh, rabbits and, and hens and um, little chickens and uh, guineas and big organic gardens and everything. Yeah, so th they do the food right there. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll have you on in season two, I'm sure, when we have a few thousand followers. Uh... Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you guys so much. I Thanks, really Tyler. It. Thank you.